Good morning to you all. Uh, my name is Ross. It's a pleasure to see you here this morning. Uh, we're going to be continuing with our series, looking at the greatest stories ever told. Uh, and if you missed the first two uh, talks in our series, I can encourage you to, to look them up. Um, uh, likewise, to those who are watching this online, a special hello to you as well. Um, we're going to be looking again at, at Matthew, and we're going to be looking at a parable. And today, our parable is focusing on the lost sheep. Uh, and this is, like our previous talks, is focusing on the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, uh, and where the first two talks were looking at characteristics of what that kingdom is going to look like, uh, today's parable is focusing more on how do you enter into it, how do you become a part of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and through our parable, the parable of the lost sheep, uh, we have this lost and found story uh, that is at the heart of it. Now, lost and found stories uh, have been told many, many times over through, through books, through films. Uh, so we're going to take a, a quick little tour through just three examples uh, of popular lost and found stories. So I hope this is going to work. Yes, there we go. Uh, example number one, Toy Story. Uh, in a world where toys are actually alive, but they pretend not to be when their owners are around, uh, Sheriff Woody and his friends are highly anxious and worried about two major events happening uh, in the lives of their owner, Andy, and his family. Uh, Andy's about to experience a birthday, uh, and his family are preparing to move homes. This is causing the toys great concern. They are worried about, one, being physically lost as part of the move, but secondly, uh, they're worried about being emotionally lost to Andy as new toys are introduced to the room. Uh, the nature of this uh, is really uh, clearly explained when Woody says partway through the movie uh, to, to one of the new toys, Buzz Lightyear, he says, this is the perfect time to panic. I'm lost, Andy is gone, they're going to move their home in two days and it's all your fault. Now, spoiler alert, it doesn't end badly. Example number two. Uh, if you are an action uh, thriller fan, uh, the 2008 film featuring Liam Neeson uh, might be one that you've seen already. Uh, this one features a retired CIA agent uh, whose daughter uh, goes on holiday to Paris. Uh, so in the opening scenes of the movies, in the movie, she is kidnapped uh, and taken for ransom. And so in the most iconic sort of scene and lines of the movie, uh, Neeson's character says over the phone to the kidnappers uh, these lines. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for a ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills that I've acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you, I will find you, and I will kill you. I'll let you imagine how the rest of the movie goes. Example number three, 101 Dalmatians. Uh, originally written as a novel in 1956 by Dodie Smith, before twice being adapted as films, once animated and once uh, with a live cast. The story follows two Dalmatian dogs, Pongo and Perdita, and their owners uh, as they seek to find their 15 puppies that have been taken by the nefarious, the evil Cruella de Vil, who's planned to turn these 15 puppies, along with 74 others, into her new fur coat. Uh, through many traps, snares and great toil, Pongo and Petita seek out the lost puppies, find them, save them, and return them safely home again. Pongo and Petita, P 
Perdita's owners end the story with 101 Dalmatians in their care, but they're, they're quite happy to provide a safe, loving home for them. So with just three examples to follow, which follow a lost and, f- lost and found plotline, uh, I'm sure that you can think of others too. Uh, but knowing that they're featured many times over in books and films, uh, it's worth us considering what makes this a popular storyline. What is, what is it about a lost and found story uh, that engages us and interests us so very much? Uh, I'm going to give you two main reasons why I think this is the case. Uh, the first is that it's a common and relatable experience. Uh, everybody has a lost and found story. Uh, you might even have one from this morning. Uh, funnily enough, as, as we came into church this morning, Hannah looks at me and says, where's Harris, our, our second? Uh, he was temporarily lost. Turns out we'd just forgotten to let him out of the car. Uh, but <laughs> but we, I, wrote this, I wrote this saying, you might have one for this morning, and it turns out I, I do have a lost and found story from this morning. Uh, you, might, you might too. Uh, it could be something little. Uh, it could be something big and important. It could be the same item you are misplacing time and time again. Uh, it could be something you put away for safe cap- safekeeping and it's very much in safekeeping because you can't find it again. Uh, it may have taken a little time uh, or no time at all, but it might have taken you an extremely long time to, to search it down and find it as well. Uh, so losing something, searching for it and finding it again uh, is something that we do all the time uh, and so we can relate to it very, very clearly. Uh, the second reason I think that we respond so, so well to lost and found stories is that uh, it, we have such distinct emotional responses to it. Our bodies uh, are designed to respond in very particular ways to lost and found. Uh, we respond with, with stress, frustration, anxiety to when things are lost, uh, but there is a huge sense of relief uh, when we do find something. I'll give you another personal example for this. Uh, I can remember a number of years ago um, when I was getting ready for the first day back at work uh, and Hannah and our only and eldest child, Clark, had already, already left for the morning at that point. And so just as it's getting towards the time where I need to leave to go to work as well, I look over at my bedside table at where my work keys would normally be sitting. And as I look for them, they aren't there. They're lost. And so... I have this slight sense of concern when I remember hearing Clark playing next to our, 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 in our bedroom next to my bed sometime in, in the weeks previously. And that means the keys really could be anywhere. So just bef- you know, before I, I go down that rabbit warren and, and really start getting frustrated, I think maybe I've put them in my bag. So I, un- I empty all the contents of my bag looking for these work keys, but no, no, they are not in my work bag. And so my frustration builds a little bit and my speed picks up as I move to Clark's room thinking that's the most likely place where the keys are. I get into the room, I look across at his bookshelf. That's where most of the prized possessions were being placed. But no, no keys on the bookshelf. Uh, I can feel my muscles tighten, my pulse gets a little bit faster. I don't know where these keys are and I need to find them fast. The most likely place I next think, they could be in the drawers. So as I start pulling shirts and shorts out, I get to the bottom of his drawers, still no keys. My anger kicks it up another little notch at that point. And so as I take a big swipe at some toys that are sitting in the corner and they start flying across the room, I hear that faint jingle. Could it be? Is that the clink, clank jingle of keys? And so I follow them. As they fly across the room, I find another little bag and I start pulling out all the contents of the bag until, lo and behold, at the very bottom of the bag, there are my work keys. 
they were lost, but now they've been found. And so as I let the, the dopamine, the serotonin, the endorphins start flooding through my body, I can feel all those things that happened before start to, start to release. I start to loosen up. My breath slows down. My mood starts to change. I, I decide that a two-year-old hasn't intentionally tried to ruin my morning by taking my keys. I, I actually get ready to go to work now having found my lost keys. Uh, and, and this is our, our natural response to it. Our bodies do tense and tighten up. We get annoyed. We get frustrated at things that are lost. But the sense of relief that we feel once we've found something uh, is really such a wonderful, pleasant feeling. And so with that in mind... I'd encourage you to do two things right now. The first is to keep those emotions in mind as we come to thinking about the parable of the lost sheep. Keep that that frustration, keep that annoyance, keep that anxiety or stress that you might feel about something being lost in mind, but also equally think about the, the relief, how we feel comforted, how we feel that everything is okay once we've actually found something. Uh, and as with most lost and found stories, the more value we put in the item the greater those emotions are as well. Uh, and as we talk about the parable, uh, we're talking about some very big, important things uh, to do with our life at the same time. Uh, the other thing I'd encourage you to do is to keep Matthew 18 open in front of you uh, as we, we look into it. Uh, so as we, as we jump in, uh, all many, many lost and found stories will have an opening scene. Uh, they are also likely to have a part that that might not seem like it's distinctly related to the lost and found story to begin with. But they always do in the end, don't they? And so we have the same happening here. We have an opening scene, we have the curtains being rolled back, the story about to begin, uh, and the conversation might not seem like it automatically has something to do with lost and found, but it does. Uh, Let's jump in and let's have a look and see what it says to us. So at the very beginning, uh, we see an interesting, intriguing, and egotistical question being asked to to start our passage. Verse 1 says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and they asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? How's that for the first thing as part of the story? Not showing away from starting with a bit of controversy or arguing, the 12 disciples have plucked up the courage to ask Jesus a question that's all about status, specifically their status. They're seeking to position themselves so that they will be the greatest in God's perfect world. That takes some ego. Now, before we get too self-righteous and start condemning the disciples for thinking like this, we need to ask the question of why. Why would they ask a question like this of Jesus? Uh, And I think there are two particular reasons uh, that we can look at. Uh, I think it's fairly natural that given they've been spending a lot of time with Jesus, And if he's setting up a kingdom, they would assume that the people that Jesus is going to be bringing in, having a part of his kingdom, are going to be impressive. Jesus was pretty impressive, so there must be something special or great about the people that are going to be joining him there too. Uh, Another reason, the disciples have lived in a world, much like ours, that is governed and ruled by hierarchies and pecking orders. Uh, And as with many people in our world, the disciples want to be at the top of the pecking order if they can be if there is one in the kingdom of heaven. And when we think about the disciples, uh, we, can, we can start to realise that many of them might actually think that there's a characteristic about them that would give them a special place, that does make them different or better than other people. Uh, when we think about Peter, he was bold, often the first to speak. He was a natural-born leader. Judas Iscariot was the money man. 
pulling the purse strings takes responsibility and discretion. Simon and Andrew were the first disciples called. There must be something particular and special about being the first ones called. Uh, And John, well, he was Jesus' beloved one, the one who he instructed to look after his mother while he was dying on the cross. Uh, And so it's quite quite natural for us to think uh, that there could be some special spots reserved. It's it's like that in our world. Some stars shine brighter than others. There are jobs and responsibilities that come uh, with greater status. And so the disciples are assuming that the kingdom of heaven is going to be like this too. So what is Jesus' response to that? Well, he doesn't exactly address their question first of all. So we're given our first little cliffhanger of the story. Instead of giving an answer straight away, what Jesus responds with is by calling a child over and placing the child among the disciples. And he starts talking about needing to be like this little child. In verse 3, he says to them, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. So in response to the group of people who are closest to him, living every day in his presence, receiving the most intimate education in godliness and righteousness, Jesus is telling them to change. That that might not seem like a strange thing to us, but when we realise that he's telling them to change and be like little children, that, that might seem a little bit unusual. Wouldn't you expect him to tell them to be smarter or wiser, maybe bolder? But he's telling them they need to be like little children. So what characteristics of being uh, of little children is Jesus telling them to take on? Uh, I don't think it's the tantrums or the, the 3 a.m. wake-ups that, that we might receive. Uh, instead, Jesus is, is responding and telling them to take on different characteristics of a child. Uh, first of all, we must remember that Jesus himself provided a valuable demonstration of what a child can be like from which adults can learn from. Uh, In Luke 2, in verse 41 to 51, as a 12-year-old, Jesus was found in a temple court sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and answers. So as we seek to understand what characteristics Jesus could be talking about, uh, we should should remember the question that was asked of Jesus at the very start of the passage, uh, a question of ego and status. Uh, And instead of responding directly to their question of ego and status, he's bringing forward an example for them of the opposite of ego and status. He's bringing forward a child who has no status within their community. He's bringing forward a child who isn't seeking to promote themselves or push themselves further forward. What Jesus is highlighting is humility. Humility is the opposite of ego and status. I read this week a description of humility that stated that humility is not being concerned about honour or glorifying yourself. A humble person is content with what they have. They are not envious. They're not aspiring to power or to raise themselves in the world or seeking to take on things too high for them. Uh, I I particularly like that, that bit at the end, seeking to take things on too high for them. So while the disciples are looking to raise themselves as high as possible uh, and take on a special place in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is telling them they need to do the opposite. They need to be like a child. They need to take a lowly position. They must not think of, of themselves more highly than they ought. The manner in which a child is content with their position or status and not needing to better their position or earn a special spot is Jesus' answer to the disciples' question. 
Now, some people describe children who, who act like this as being naive, uh, and they, they speak of it as a, as a big problem, like a character flaw, uh, that they're, they're not seeing things for the way that they are, uh, that they need to you know, wise up and learn how the world works, uh, and that, that they're probably going to get burnt at some point by being too naive. Uh, in this case, I think it's actually children who are seeing things more clearly than what we as adults often do. Uh, we can live complicated, busy lives, and it's with the 1,001 different thoughts that we go to God with uh, that can cloud the way that we relate to him or complicate things. It can make us prone to thinking like the disciples. It can make us prone to asking the same questions of what status do we have before God? Uh, can we improve our position? Can we earn favour? Uh, it might not be overt questions we ask, but they might be subtle things that creep into our thinking. In contrast, rather than not seeing things clearly for what they are, children sometimes see and relate to God much more clearly. Uh, they're not concerned by their position in a pecking order. They're not seeking to earn favour. They're much happier and more willing to ask for help when they need it. They're also more willing to receive a gift without feeling the need to return the favour. Uh, they receive the gift, say thank you, and that's sufficient. And if you think this is not the case, uh, I'd encourage you to spend Christmas morning with small children. Um, when, when a child's given a gift, you can see that, that joyful, gleeful smile come onto their face for what they're receiving. Uh, they are perfectly happy to take the gift that you're giving to them, rip through the, the wrapping as quickly as possible to unveil the gift. They look at you, they say thanks, there is no second thought about if they've earned the gift. There's no second thought about needing to repay the gift. They are perfectly content to receive what's being given to them. So what's this got to do with lost sheep? Uh, well, I think the, uh, the lost and found idea is being subtly introduced to us. Uh, in this case, it comes with that verse 3 that we looked at before, where Jesus' words say, Unless you change, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is, is introducing that unless you can be like a child, taking yourself away from being preoccupied with status or with ego or with earning your place in the kingdom, you won't be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. You will remain lost to him. And so with our lost and found theme, with our lost and found theme, uh, we're going to move to looking at what the, the parable itself says now in verses 12 to 14. Uh, you'll see the verses here on our screen. Uh, and as with lost and found stories, there, there is a very simple pattern at the heart of it as well. Something is no longer where it's supposed to be. Then through a course of actions, uh, it is found, it's retrieved, and it's returned home. We find that each of these elements in Toy Story or Taken or 101 Dalmatians and similarly, we see it here in the parable of the lost sheep. Uh, let's read the verses together again. If a man owns 100 sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go and look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing to let any of these little ones perish. So those elements, we have a flock of sheep. We have a sheep that has wandered away, is no longer with the flock. We have the shepherd or the owner who seeks out the sheep, finds it, and then returns it. The idea of Jesus speaking to his disciples about sheep was not a new concept to the Israelites. 
Uh, throughout the Old Testament, God has spoken to his people uh, via his prophets, labelling the Israelites sheep and recognising himself as their shepherd. Uh, one of the clearest references to this uh, comes in Ezekiel 34, verses 30 and 31. It says, You are the flock, the sheep of my pasture. You are my people, and I am your God. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. Uh, there's also the well-known Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside quiet waters and refreshes my soul. Uh, and another quite well-known passage, Isaiah 53.6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. Uh, and if you're anything like me now, you're stifling a big ba-ba-do-ba-ba. Thank you, Colin Buchanan. Um, so the idea of, of sheep being cared for is not an unfamiliar one uh, to Jesus' audience, the disciples, uh, because Jesus is really speaking about how he cares for his people. However, what Jesus is challenging is the level of love and care that's being demonstrated for every single sheep in his flock. Uh, in his parable, Jesus is picking the smallest possible number. My maths teaching wife is going to be loving this at the moment. The smallest possible number, one just one, one single sheep, the smallest whole number. If you went smaller, it would be a fraction. It wouldn't be an entire sheep. The smallest number to demonstrate the value, the love and the care that he has for that sheep. So much so that he would search for it, find it and return it to where it belongs. That's how much he values this sheep. Where it would be easy, easy enough to think that near enough is good enough, 99 out of 100 is not bad. You know, you could round it up to 100 and say that you've got 100 when you really have 99. Uh, he, he could say it's not, worth, it's not worth the risk. I've got others to think about. This is demonstrating to us that Jesus is saying that none, none of the sheep could be forgotten, left behind or not found. Now, the concept of being lost relates to another big idea in the Bible, that being sin. Uh, sin is when we choose to live our own way, making ourselves the king or the boss. We take the crown that God deserves to be wearing and we place it on our own head. Uh, we reject God's right to rule over our lives because uh, he's our creator and the creator of the world. Uh, and, and this means that we all start life as lost sheep. Uh, Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, so this isn't a unique case to just some people. This is something that everybody experiences and suffers from. Uh, we, be, we share in the same punishment that Adam and Eve experienced after that very first sin, where they were separated from God and couldn't live directly with him anymore. They were sent out of the Garden of Eden uh, and, in a sense, were their relationship was then lost from God. And so too ours is. That's how we all start. But the beautiful news of this parable is that, sh that any sheep that belong to Jesus' flock don't remain that way. They will be found. As long as there is just one sheep that's still lost, Jesus will seek out, search for it, find that sheep and return it home. Uh, and if finding the lost sheep were not enough, that's a pretty big effort to go to just for one sheep. The parable tells us too that the owner is filled with great happiness at finding that sheep. There's no frustration or anger at the sheep at being lost. The owner is just filled with happiness. 
uh, in Luke 15, uh, which also is a recount of the, the parable of the lost sheep, the owner is said to call his friends together and neighbours to rejoice and hold a party for the one sheep that has been found. Now, I'm not sure how you feel about sheep, but I don't value them that highly. I do not want one in my backyard. I do not want to own one and have it on somebody else's backyard. I do not want to spend any spare time looking for sheep. Uh, and I'm certainly not going to go to the point where I'm going to throw a party for sheep, lost or otherwise. I don't care about sheep that much. But our parable is showing to us how much Jesus cares for every single sheep that belongs to his flock. It's particularly important for us to understand that Jesus will go to such lengths to save any lost sheep uh, because there's, I think there's a particularly common comment that people make uh, that gives themselves a, a reason for, for not trusting Jesus, for not accepting him uh, and letting him uh, be the Lord of their life. Uh, many people will say that they feel they are too bad to be forgiven. They've done too many bad things. Uh, there's no way in which they could be saved. This parable tells us the complete opposite. Uh, the conversion of the Apostle Paul is an example of this. Uh, in the early chapters of Acts, Paul, uh, who was a, a zealous Pharisee, uh, leading the charge in squashing the growth of the early church. Uh, Acts 8 tells us that Saul approved of the stoning murder of Stephen. And on the journey that he was making when his conversion occurred, uh, he was going to capture and imprison and potentially kill some more Christians who were living in Damascus. This is a bad guy. He's not the guy that you're going to hold up and say, what a nice friendly example of a bloke. This is a bad guy who's intent on hurting and harming people. He was filled with hatred and conviction and power to do something about something that he didn't like. And it meant that he did terrible things. So much so that later after his conversion, uh, Paul wrote these words uh, in 1 Timothy. He said, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Paul knew all too well that before his conversion on the road to Damascus, that he had done horrible things in persecuting a church, that he was willing to label himself as the worst of all sinners the worst of everybody. And the story of John Newton is another which speaks of a man who was profoundly lost, yet was found by Jesus. Newton's best known as the author of the hymn Amazing Grace, which has the familiar lines from its first verse. <clears throat> no, I'm not going to sing it for you. Uh, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. When Newton describes himself as a wretch, he's making reference to his life and actions in the, in the 1700s. Uh, one aspect of his life that was a sour and confronting point for, for Newton uh, was his participation in slave trading. That is, capturing people so that they could be sailed across the world and then sold for profit as a slave. After he began to follow Jesus, Newton saw the error of his ways and ultimately became one of the chief supporters working towards the abolition of slavery. And it's in his famous hymn that Newton shows us how he felt about his life before he, uh, he started following Jesus. In saying that he was a wretch, he's saying, I am terrible. 
I am despicable. I am pitiful and pathetic. Now that's some low self-esteem right there. If a friend of mine were to talk about themselves like that, there'd be alarm bells going off in concern for, for how they were feeling. But the beautiful part is that this is not how Newton stayed. He was found, found by Jesus, just like Paul was on the road to Damascus, and just like that one sheep that we read about in our parable. So if anyone, uh, so is anyone too bad, too far gone to be saved by Jesus? Well, no. If a man arranging and approving of murder or a slave trader depriving thousands of people of basic human rights can be found and saved, then anyone can too. These two men serve as wonderful examples for us, uh, regardless of their previous experiences, that they can too be saved. How is all of this possible? Well, the event that makes it possible is, of course, Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection back to life three days later. Jesus opened the pathway, the pathway to God for us by taking the punishment for our sins. Every time we live our own way rather than God's way. The gate was opened so that people could be with him again. They could be God's people with sin no longer stopping us from being with God. That's what Jesus' death did for us. He made it so that we could be found and with him forever. Uh, Romans 5 verses 6 and 7 tell us a little bit more about this where it says, You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We did not earn our place through anything we did that's good enough. We can't be placed in a better position or higher up in the pecking order than anyone else, and we certainly weren't the first to reach out to God. It's not up to us to save ourselves because we can't. The hard work has been done in Jesus dying on the cross. What a relief to hear that. All the stress and anxiety that we could feel about a lost storyline is met in equal measure and greater through the relief that we feel once we've been found. And all we have to do is be like a little child, accepting this gift of love and give thanks. So what do we do? What do we do with our parable of the lost sheep? How do we respond to it? I think it causes us to ask a few questions. Uh, The first one is, are you lost? Maybe you've never been a part of Jesus' flock, a part of his family before. Uh, You've lived your own way, calling the shots yourself, doing things the way that you see best. Uh, If that's the case, this parable is saying you are lost. Today would be a terrific time to change that. Remember, we can't earn our way into the kingdom of heaven. Our sin and wrongdoing prevent that. Instead, we need to be like that little child, willing to accept the offer of forgiveness that Jesus provides us. He has died on the sins He's died on the cross for your sins uh, so that we can be with him. Uh, And what we need to do is respond like a little child who is receiving an undeserved gift. We receive it, we accept it, and we give thanks. Uh, There's a prayer written on the bottom of the service outline, and I'll pray it shortly, uh, which can help you to respond uh, to God knowing that you are lost from him. Uh, I'll invite you to pray these words too and be found by Jesus just like a lost sheep today. Two more questions first, though. 
Uh, our second question, are you wandering? Maybe you are familiar with church and the Bible, but are the questions of status and earning favour or repaying God's kindness starting to seep in? Are your choices and your actions influenced by doing what you think will put you in a better position before God? Can I encourage you today to humble yourself like a little child and remember the words from Romans 5 that we read before. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our last question, uh, it's, it's for followers of Jesus, and it is, is there someone who you care about who's currently lost? I'm sure there are people that you can think of. I certainly can. Well, first of all, be encouraged that even though they may be lost right now, there is no one that cannot be found by Jesus if they are a part of his flock. So commit to praying for them. Continually bringing them before God because he can save anyone. Who better to trust to return them to the flock than Jesus, the one who sacrificed himself to return lost sheep to God? Uh, let's finish by praying the words on the service outline together. Uh, and following that, we're going to listen to the, uh, the great hymn that we spoke of earlier, John Newton's Amazing Grace. Uh, so I invite you to pray with me now. Father, by myself I am lost. I cannot earn your favour or do anything to have a place in your kingdom. Thank you that Jesus promises to find every, every one of the sheep that wants to be found. I want to accept the gift of forgiveness that you offer today and be found by you. Thank you that Jesus died on the cross so that this can happen. Amen. Let's listen to Amazing Grace.